Ever thought about setting up a website to advance a business idea or share your knowledge? If you don't know where to start, then let's be partners. I'm Jonathan Mosen, and at Mosen Consulting, we work with our clients every step of the way, doing as much or as little as you need us to do. We'll set up a domain name, design a logo, install and configure the website, and then give you a personalized manual written in clear Mosen Consulting style so you can run the website yourself once it's set up. Working closely with you, Mosen Consulting will deliver a website that's accessible, classy, and functional. Contact us and describe the website of your dreams at mosen.org. That's M-O-S-E-N.org. Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Good to be back with you, no matter where you're listening from and what you're doing while you listen. I must say, I listen to a lot of my podcasts on the exercise bike or the rowing machine or doing weights. I I do a lot of exercise when I'm listening to the podcast. I have gotten into the whole meditation thing, and we'll talk about that a little bit in next week's podcast. But still, I find I get totally bored if I try to do exercise without something else to think about while I do the exercise. I don't actually enjoy exercise very much, so I often have a favorite podcast on. So whether you're on a long commute or just relaxing or working out and pumping iron, it's great to have you here. On the podcast this week, we're going to be speaking with David Blunkett, now Lord Blunkett. He is the former British Home Secretary, a household name in the United Kingdom. We'll be talking a bit about politics, but mostly about how he did things as a blind person, the only blind person ever to become a member of the British cabinet. There was somebody who made it to the Privy Council in the 19th century, But David Blunkett is the only blind person who made it all the way to the British cabinet, and we'll be speaking with him in just a moment. Before we get there, I do want to give you a final reminder that there is a follow-up to our podcast on blind parenting, which was so popular. Parenting is one of those subjects, whether you're blind or not, that many people like to talk about, even if you're not a parent. I remember before I was a parent, I had all these theories about how parents could just stop their noisy children from running around doctor's waiting rooms or wherever it was I happened to be where they were acting up. (laughs) It's all good. I tell you what, it's a little bit more challenging putting the theory into practice, but we're going to be talking about blind parenting on our live call-in show, A Cuppa at the Mosins on Mushroom FM, and we'd very much enjoy your experience. Now, we would also enjoy hearing from the sighted children of blind parents It's actually the Easter holidays here in New Zealand at the moment. And so I may well be able to convince a child or two of mine to come in the studio and give me their frank assessment of what it's like to have a blind parent. Hopefully the fact that they have their blind parent in the room won't intimidate them too much. It never seems to any other time. (laughs) So that could be an interesting experience. But I'd love to have that angle as well from sighted children of blind parents. But if you are a blind parent, Perhaps you've faced some sort of discrimination or you've had a very positive experience or a challenging experience being a parent. Share all of those things. A reminder that A Cuppa at the Mosins is on Thursday nights at 9 Eastern time. Unfortunately, that is insanely early in the United Kingdom. But to slightly paraphrase Jimmy Buffett, it's 2 a.m. somewhere. And it happens to be 2 a.m. in the UK, unfortunately. The show does replay on a Mondays at 4 a.m. Eastern, which is 9 a.m. in the UK, so you can hear it on the replay if you're in a time zone where it's difficult for you. And that is on Mushroom FM. It's in TuneIn. It's on OO Tunes, which means it's in the Victor Reader stream. It's in all the usual directories by searching for Mushroom FM. Or you can go to the website and use the accessible player at mushroomfm.com. That's mushroomfm.com. Really looking forward to this open call-in show on blind parenting. There are phone numbers and means of calling in all around the world. So no matter where you are, there's no barrier to picking up the phone and participating. And while we're on the subject of Mushroom FM, there is a lot of new content coming to Mushroom FM over the next little while. You may know that in August of last year, Mushroom FM switched to a format where it now plays music from the 50s through to the 80s, apart from a couple of specialist shows. It's gone very, very well. So if you haven't checked out Mushroom FM since we made that change and you're a fan of those four decades of music, 
You'll love what you hear, and there's a raft of new shows starting this weekend. I do intend putting out a blog post summarizing all the new shows that you can hear, and you can also check out the schedule over the next week as the schedule unfolds at mushroomfm.com slash schedule. That's mushroomfm.com slash schedule. And by default, if you have JavaScript enabled, you will see the schedule displayed in your own time zone, so you don't have to do all the pesky conversions. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. On this week's podcast, two formerly bumptious blind people having a conversation. Fear not, we are rehabilitated from bumptiousness now, I'm sure. An example of the young David Blunkett's self-confessed bumptiousness was that as a 21-year-old, he wrote into a BBC TV feedback program complaining about the televising of naked bodies in a morgue, then went to London at the BBC's invitation to appear on the show, talking about the naked bodies he couldn't see. As for the other end of the conversation, as a bumptious 19-year-old out of New Zealand for the first time, visiting the UK and obsessed with politics, I'd heard that a blind member of Parliament had been elected. So I was bumptious enough to call his office to see if I could interview him for my little tape-based magazine back home. To my great surprise, he generously gave me some time, and you never forget a kindness like that. Over the years, I've watched a man who was at one point Britain's youngest city councillor rise all the way to the senior position of Home Secretary in Tony Blair's government, where, among other things, he managed Britain's response to the 11th of September attacks. He's the only blind person to have been a member of the British Cabinet. Now, Lord Blunkett, he joins me on the phone. Lord Blunkett, it's a real pleasure to have you on the blind side. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be with you. Thank you very much. And the the corollary to uh, the little story about uh, my first appearance on television was that they'd no idea I couldn't see until I arrived. (laughs) So how did they cope with that? (laughs) I have to say they handled it extremely well. Very good. Let's go back to the beginning. The degree to which parents raise their blind kids as normal kids who happen not to be able to see can have an enormous impact. And it sounds like you were very lucky in that regard. Yes. I mean, we had terrible traumas in the family because my dad was killed in a works accident when I was 12, but up to that point, he'd given no quarter in terms of making sure that uh, my blindness didn't get in the way of his doing things, going to football matches, my home team's Sheffield Wednesday and still is, uh, the uh, long walks that he took me on. It was, it was a, a camaraderie experience in those early years. And my mum, although she was always, always concerned that I didn't... Um, fall flat, literally fall flat on my face and was always a bit circumspect about my ambition, was always there backing me, encouraging, being there when I needed her. You've spoken in the past about the distress at having to leave home for boarding school at such an early age, and that's a big deal for many blind kids. I'm sure that you've given considerable thought, though, to the question, particularly when you were Secretary of State for Education and Employment in the Blair government, It's a complex issue, isn't it? Because making education successful for blind children in the mainstream, it requires constant resourcing. It's not just a matter of one-off modifications to the built environment as it is for other disabilities. Yes, and it's particularly so with integrated open education. If a child is to succeed, and this applies to other disabilities as well, and as, as you will know, many blind children now have multiple challenges. Um, You need the support systems. You can't just say, here, you know, have a go. We'll we'll notify the school you're coming. You've got to prepare. You've got to have people on hand who know about uh, accessible systems for learning. I don't just mean Braille. I mean now uh, how to use the web and to use the computer systems in the most effective way. You, You need the uh, the guidance that other other kids just take for granted. And if you are in a specialist school, then of course you're going to be resourcing it very heavily and hopefully preparing a child for the world outside that residential setting. The biggest challenge I had when I came out of residential school, and I did go to a boarding school, because that was the only choice in those days, was adapting as quickly as possible to a very different world where facilities weren't designed for blind uh, adults. They were designed for the world of the sighted. And 
You just had to learn to get on with it. But it sounds like if you hadn't had the grit and determination to take those night classes that you did and make something of yourself, the system would actually have failed you. Well, pluses and minuses. The system was uh, was broken. Um, the presumption that blind children couldn't do external examinations unless they went to the specific school for academically able-blind children. Uh, in those days, it was just a boys' school at Worcester, a girls' school just outside London in Hertfordshire, for those who know it. And the rest of us were going to do piano tuning, which I've got nothing against. I love music, but I'm no good at tuning, uh, or lathe operation or something similar. That, that presumption was made for us. And to break it, uh, I and a handful of my colleagues at that time went to evening class at the technical college in the community we were in, in Shropshire, near the Welsh border. We, we started to build up the qualifications that would get us into higher education, in my case, the University of Sheffield. But it took six years, and that is a long, hard haul. And you either have the tenacity, the pig-headedness, as you were referring to, to do it, or you go under. And it's touch and go sometimes, as you will know, and others listening in will know, it's touch and go as to whether you actually can keep going because it's a long, hard haul when other people are having a good time and enjoying themselves. You've already talked about how your father died in horrific circumstances when he fell into a vat of of boiling water and your family had to fight tooth and nail to get compensation. It's hard to think of a more graphic, painful story of the imbalance of power that existed in society then. Was that the pivotal moment that saw you choosing labour and indeed choosing a career in public service to try and make a difference and to some extent avenge that? I think we're all affected by our background and circumstances. I certainly was. I mean, that drove me to want to make a difference, to change the world for the better, it still does. I discovered in due course that it was going to be a slow, messy and painful process, but a worthwhile one nevertheless. And my, my driving force was what, not just what happened to my dad and the lack of compensation for, for two years. We had a fight to get any kind of compensation for my mum and for me from that works accident. But also what happened to my grandfather, who was uh, living with us, My mum became extremely ill. My grandfather had to go into what can only be described as appalling workhouse conditions. And at that moment, I really did say to myself, come hell or high water, I want other people to be relieved of that, just as I wanted them to have better opportunity for education than I'd had. And I've been striving for that. I have the fantastic opportunity of being leader of the city of Sheffield, which is uh, the UK's fourth largest city, I was privileged to be able to get a seat in Parliament and, above all, to be able to get into Cabinet and do something about it. And we, we all get knocks. Politicians are pulled down. I understand that. It's part of the democratic process. It takes us down a peg or two and ensures that uh, we don't get above ourselves and that we can be removed and others can be put in our place. But I've got no doubt whatsoever that the changes that I was able to make in the eight years I was a member of the cabinet alongside colleagues actually did transform people's lives. And there's nothing more rewarding, satisfying than being able to look back on that. And now to keep going in different ways, you have to adjust. Can't, uh, can't, can't look back on eight years in cabinet and live on it. You've got to get on and um, do new things. Mindful of our audience, I'm trying to prioritise some of the blindness questions relating to your career, but as a political nerd, i got to ask you this. Some might argue that the stark imbalance of power that was the, the catalyst for what happened to your dad no longer exists, and you're partly responsible for that because of some of the measures that you put in place as Secretary of State for Education and Employment. But you, you're on the conservative end of the spectrum on some moral and social issues, You put the work in. You went to night school. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Do you think now you may, if you were starting over, have found a home with Theresa May's brand 
of conservatism who has been quite careful about not being branded the nasty party? No, I don't, um, because I believe inherently in the valuable power of government to do good. I don't, and I believe Theresa May still inherits this, believe in the Frederick Hayek, Milton Friedman view of the world, which is that governments are the problem, not the solution, and we should keep them out of things as much as possible. Now, Theresa May doesn't articulate that in quite the way that her predecessors uh, of the last uh, 40 years have done, um, but it's still there. It's a belief that actually um, we, we shouldn't accept responsibility for each other, and we should accept the one underlying thing, and you're right about this, I am a social conservative. I believe it's a two-way street. I believe there's a deal that we do, and that is that if we put the effort, commitment, the drive in, go the extra mile, then we can ask the wider community to help us, to support us, to be there when, not just when things go wrong, but when we need them to give us a leg up. And I think that two-way street is absolutely critical. It's about reciprocity, basically. If people think that you're singing the lead, you're actually taking the wider society for granted, you're prepared to, to just live off other people, they start withdrawing from wanting to be uh, a committed supporter of those who are in need. In other words, they, they, they decide well, we've worked hard, it's our money, we're going to disengage. And for those of us who count ourselves as social democrats and believe in equality, we've got to reverse that. We've got to say, yes, if, if we've set up systems that allow people to simply drift along, we've done them no favours and we've done wider society and the psychology of mutual help no, no favours. So it's got to literally be a two-way street. And I'm still now engaged in trying to articulate that because social democracy, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the world, is really under the cosh. And we've got to find new ways of expressing old values and old truths. You wouldn't accept then the view of some of the, the Corbynites in the Labour Party in Britain that, in fact, New Labour, the, the Blair-Brown administration, went in quite a Friedmanite direction in some respects. Now, we've got in a silly situation on the left in Britain where everything and everybody are described as neoliberal, even those of us who believed it was right to allow people to come and work legally and freely in our country rather than excluding them. So we've got into a really bad place in terms of the debate and the discussion there were things that uh, we could have done better. We could have regulated our banks more effectively, but the idea that the Labour government was responsible for the global meltdown and what happened with the subprime mortgage fiasco in the United States and the collapse of the banks and the subsequent austerity across Europe um, is risible. Um, so, you know, I, I just reject entirely. I, what, I, what I think is that there are people in my party now who really resent the idea that we won three times in those general elections of 1997, 2001, 2005. And wouldn't it have been a lot better if we'd remained in opposition? Because they like, their mentality is about opposition um, rather than the responsibility, the messiness, the compromise, the negotiation, which government involves, not just internally, not just within our country, but with globalization, you are having to work out how to counterweight real power that ex exists outside the, politi the democratic political arena. We've got to work out together across countries, across boundaries, how to counterweight that power without believing that we can turn the clock back to some halcyon era, which never existed anyway, where national governments could wave a wand and decisions would be made in parliaments and they would automatically change the world. It didn't work like that. Mm, maybe New Labour got the balance wrong, though, sacrificing principles for power. Well, I don't think we did originally, you see. I think that um, whilst we might be criticised down the line, in 97, 
we had a clear set of commitments which we carried through. It's partly why we were re-elected so overwhelmingly in 2001, much to most of our surprise in terms of the size of the victory. And we didn't overpromise. We actually did say it's going to be quite difficult. We can't just uh, decide that we'll double taxes and spend money on everything that we'd like to spend. We're going to have to work this one through because if you don't keep the support of those who are doing reasonably well, not the very rich, they can always look after themselves, but those who are ticking along, working hard, making ends meet, and want a government that clearly hears them. If you don't keep their support, you don't help the poor and the disadvantaged and the uh, excluded because you don't get into government. And I'm all in favour of social movements that work from the bottom up and about creating tides of opinion, uh, which is what the Corbynistas rely on. But unless it connects up with real machinery, organs of power, unless it actually connects to the political process, you're whistling in the wind. You're just having a pint of beer or a glass of wine down the, the local bar um, and um, living in dreamland. Going back to your own career, when you found yourself on the council, it really was against the odds in two key respects. You were very young and you were very blind. What was it about you that caused local party members to take such a massive chance on you? God knows. I mean, I do look back on it, and I do think hell's bells. One of those things was bad enough. There, there was. It's different now in the UK, but when I was elected at the age of 22 to the council, there was nobody under the age of 45. And I think they did find this a bit of a culture shock. And by the way, so did I. Um, and the idea that somebody who couldn't see was just an added bonus for me. And a, and a, and a, and a sign, I think of the beginnings of real change in attitude. They took a risk. My local party members took a big risk. And although people were, and I was, uncertain as to how I was going to manage practically what measures might be taken, bear in mind there was no internet. You couldn't actually draw down the uh, policy papers and uh, read them in that way. You needed support. I think in the end... It was a vote of confidence in a slightly bumptious, slightly overconfident young man who, because of not being able to see, had learned how to persuade, had learned how to talk. Most of my education came from avid listening to the radio, including things in my early teens, never mind my late teens, which were way above my head in terms of what I was learning at school. And that was almost the University of the Air. I've always admired that you have talked frankly with the public about some of the aspects of your work that's been made more difficult because of blindness and sometimes having a gentle laugh at yourself in what I would call the blind moments. And I'm sure many of us identify with these blind moments. One of my favourite stories of yours is when you were the warm-up act for Dennis Healy back in 1979. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing that story with the audience. Yeah, we had a by-election. The local member of parliament had died. I I lost that um, nomination by one vote within the Labour Party. Damn good job, because God knows what I'd have been like if I'd got in and been in opposition for 18 years and not had the opportunity of leading the city and all the things that happened. But I was asked to help, and after I'd had a whiskey, which I used to drink, I don't anymore, um, we, I said I would do whatever they wanted. They said, would I speak? The Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, before the 79 general election, was coming to, to uh, the local community. And I was the warm up act. And I spoke and I spoke and I spoke. After about 45 minutes, <laughs> I said, Well, I said, I, I don't normally say this, but uh, I really hope that Dennis Healy will be with us shortly because I'm running out of steam. And a voice at my elbow said, I've been here for the last 25 minutes and enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> and uh, I thought, <laughs> I mean, everybody obviously laughed, and I was privileged to be able to tell that story in brief in my maiden speech in the House of Lords 
because Dennis Healy had just died. Yeah. And I was able to say what a great guy and what a privilege it was to have been the warmer back. Ouch. So many of us have been there, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. A member of the cabinet has to be prepared to deal with masses of information, and some of it can come through thick and fast. Could you talk about the strategies and accommodations that were put in place to assist you to do that, to deal with that massive amount of information? Well, you will know this, and uh, all those who have faced the same challenge will know that dealing with the volume of I used to say written material, but uh, um, print online material now is is the biggest issue of all uh, because you have to prioritize, you have to know what you're looking for, you have to devise ways of cutting through what others would skip through, um, cutting through the crap, in other words. My, my initial strategy when I was in government was to say to those who wrote very long, tedious reports that never got to the point that they were going to have to read these reports onto cassette so I could listen to them while I was traveling or late at night or first thing in the morning. It's amazing how quickly those reports were shortened. (laughs) Um, And uh, it stood me in good stead. I used to also get people to come around the table and talk and make them argue their points because there was a presumption that in these reports there was a common view from the civil service, from the policy officers, from those people from outside the civil service that we drew in. And of course there wasn't. And I wanted to hear what people had got to say and then be able to draw conclusions. Above all, and this is really important for anyone who's in public life, to make decisions. The worst ministers, Tony Blair said, and he was right, were those who could never make a decision. They just sent back again and again for further papers, for further analysis. And sometimes you have to go with your instinct. You get the information, you weigh the arguments, you ensure that you actually, in the post, uh, in the pre-Trump era, you actually do have some salience uh, in terms of learning what the facts are and uh, trying to get to truth and not just vague opinion. And then you have to go for it. When you were Home Secretary, I was designing assistive technology products and I often thought, man, I should get in touch with you and uh, talk about some ways in which I think your productivity could be enhanced. But you were, you were on the and, and I wish you had. Really? <laughs> well, what I figured yeah, was... Because I'm still, I'm still struggling with it. I, I, I'm very strongly in favour of the use of technology and I, I'm uh, on the advisory committee of the University of Sheffield, which has a centre for assistive technology. We've just set up an all-party parliamentary group within the two houses of the UK Parliament. Literally um, three weeks ago, we launched it. I'm very keen on this, but absolutely useless in person. And uh, you know, I'm working on it bit by bit, but when Gary... Uh, Donahue showed me some of his materials and the great guy who's working in Washington for the BBC, totally blind, uh, politics uh, reporter. When he showed me some of his uh, ways of working, it, it infused me, but it also frightened me because I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going back to my old ways of doing things. And that's the thing. The way I thought about it was you're on the treadmill by this point. I mean, you have decisions to make. There's lots going on. And the sheer time involved in getting off that treadmill and learning to do things in a new way, there may have been efficiency gains long term, but I suspect you wouldn't have been able to afford the time. Well, I think that's extraordinarily perceptive. Um, I used to think, look, if I'm going to adopt an entirely new way of operating, I need to immerse myself in this, and that means I'm going to have to go away. And going away at the highest level in politics, you can only really do if you're taken seriously ill, which I was once while I was Home Secretary. But most of the time, the water's closed behind you, and people just don't get it. It's a little bit better now, because obviously people have got used to maternity leave, uh, and I have to cope with it, but I still don't think it's easy. And in my case, I shied away from it. I just literally thought, I'm going to go under if I take myself out of this situation. 
And in any case, it wasn't just the time out. It's the adjustment afterwards. It's the fact that you've got to continue working in that entirely new way, different way, until it's embedded, until you're comfortable with it. And I, I wasn't sure how long that was going to take. And I don't... I don't think anybody can tell you that, can they? No, no. I mean, it, it depends on a bunch of factors. Some people take to the stuff naturally. Others find it a struggle. And, and there's there's no shame in that. It's just that some people not seem... Not at all. Yeah, Absolutely not. Yeah. But anyway, I think that's extremely perceptive. And it was the reason why I head down, kept on going. And of course, there was one other reason, which also was a factor when I came out of the cabinet, which was I did have good support. I had resources available to me as a member of parliament with some enhancement for reading and uh, for the use of equipment and that meant that i could operate under the old rules because i had people around me if i wanted to send something quickly i would just ask them to do it yeah. now that is a privilege that uh, blind people across the world just don't have and I'm painfully aware of that, which I fought very hard to ensure that access to work provision, that mobility allowance for travel should be widely available to help people do this. And I, just to reassure the listening audience, I have fought over the years hard to do that, often by insisting that other colleagues should take it seriously. You, you are not a member of parliament for blind people or disabled people. You are not there in cabinet to be the voice you are there to make sure that other people get the message that they are the voice that they should be arguing for the facilities the support the um, the, the systems to be changed and i think i made some progress on that although initially groups for and representing people with disabilities were a bit taken aback that i wasn't going to be the kind of figurehead spokesperson, even though I had responsibility twice for issues relating to disability rights, I made other members of my team uh, responsible and then advised and backed them, but said, look, get out there, make sure that our colleagues locally in councils across the country, as well as nationally in Parliament, get the message that they haven't handed this over to me or to you, because that's the syndrome that you're fighting all the time. Somebody else has taken responsibility. That's fine. We can leave it alone and forget about it. It's a different mindset, isn't it? In New Zealand, 21 years ago, we changed to the German list-based system of MMP. So you have half the parliament elected by constituencies and the other half filled by party lists. And that has afforded the opportunity for national constituencies to be represented via the list system. So some parties might nominate somebody who they perceive to represent the disability vote. I guess there are pluses and minuses in that approach. Yes, we've got something not dissimilar uh, for the Scottish Parliament now. It hasn't made a dramatic difference, is the honest truth. One of the twists of our system at the moment is there are more people in the House of Lords in the second unelected chamber reflecting diversity of all kinds, not just disability, but also race, than there is in the Commons, getting a lot better. Um, but we, we have blips. I mean, I stepped down in 2015. One of my colleagues who, who's experienced it being after a terrible accident um, using a wheelchair, uh, lost her seat to the Scottish Nationalists. And so you end up with a blip. We do have a minister in the Conservative government representing a a, a coastal area called Blackpool um, as, a, as a junior minister who has a disability and it's I, I, quite rightly he doesn't make a feature of it but it's important in terms of sending messages It seems as if you've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with Braille. I've heard you reading statements in the House of Commons and I thought how great this is that uh, the Brits are seeing somebody getting up and working with Braille in such a competent manner, but it sounds like it was quite a stressful experience for you. I found it excruciating. Making speeches from notes was fine. Answering questions, having made a statement to Parliament, was never a problem. I, I enjoyed that cut and thrust. Reading the statement out that had to be prepared within 
couple of hours usually of delivering it, getting the Braille and the print versions aligned because the print version was handed out at the time you stood up to speak, clearing it with uh, both uh, number 10, that's the Prime Minister's office, and where there was money involved, the Chancellor of the Exchequer's office at number 11. Those were nightmare moments. And you'd stand up with little preparation of having read it. And whilst I'm a Braille user and always will be and value it, I'm not a fluent Braille reader. And I found the act of having to do that, to read it word for word, as opposed to ad-libbing, which I love doing, I found that really stressful. And those who were closest to me, you know, used to give me a hug when I'd come off and said, you managed it, you managed it. Didn't make any difference. I still felt the same the next time. Had I had my time again, I think I would have slowed down a little. You know, there are people who use a technique of speaking slightly more slowly, of reading more slowly, and that gives you a little bit of a breathing space for turning the pages for having sometimes been able to prepare for where to make the break when you're turning a bell page over. Uh, sometimes not. And you'll appreciate this, as many listening will. Get that wrong, and you can make a real dog's dinner of it. You can end up with turning two pages instead of one. Uh, I did that once and managed to recover just. I learned to put talcum powder uh, on on the braille, um, I ended up dropping braille sheets at my feet. Something I would never do when I was in a public arena where there wasn't somewhere to drop it behind. The dispatch box, as it's called, provided me with cover, but I wouldn't recommend it um, as a as a feature of any blind person speaking in public because it, if you were if it was visible, it would look pretty naff, to be honest. These days you may be using a refreshable braille display if you were in the position um, now. That may or may not be a better option to have it all on one device that you can scroll through. I think in terms of handling braille sheets, it would. There's Mm. no question about that. A, so long as you were good at handling the device, and B, so long as it didn't break down. Yeah, yeah, right. uh, (laughs) You know, new, new technology has a habit of biting back at you and I'm just thinking as you were saying it, yes, really important to be able to do that would look better, feel better, you could pace it easier, you don't have uh, bottoms of pages, you don't have to turn over but my god, what do you do if the damn thing breaks down? You're decisive, you've always been Smile, I I suspect, smile and say, I think we'll come back to that in two minutes. Yeah, you won't have a commercial break Yeah You, uh, you've always been a straight shooter. Uh, you've got excellent media skills and people admire you for what you achieved. People were suggesting at one point that you may be an alternative to succeed Tony Blair when the time came. Circumstances intervened. And I know you've said that you didn't think it would be possible. You never really hankered for the job, but you may have been drafted, don't you think? Well, who knows? Um I used to sit there sometimes thinking, now, how would I handle this if I were in Tony Blair's shoes? I don't just mean politically, you know, what decision would I take, but how would I handle this in terms of presentation? How would I handle the stress, the enormous traveling, because as part of the G8, part of the European Union, then um, part of the Commonwealth, the, the, the travel commitments, the statements that had to be made uh, and where you couldn't slip up. All of those things did weigh with me. Um, it wasn't going to be, actually, because Gordon Brown was incredibly well organized and had been for a very long time um, embedding his support all over the place. So in a politically, um, in a, a political sense, I was never, and no one else was going to be able to successfully challenge him to take over from Tony Blair. But had it been different, I don't know. I think attitudes are changing for the better all the time. All of us are contributing to that in small ways as well as large. What we do, how we behave, how we succeed in little ways makes a difference to that change in attitude. 
remember way back when uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, was president, he hid his disability pretty successfully because he didn't feel, albeit this is going back a while, that people were ready for it. I'm not entirely sure that we're still ready for it in the United Kingdom. I've detected a degree of wistful reflection in some of your more recent interviews, and you've suggested that not being able to see the reactions and body language of your colleagues may have harmed your working relationships. And even recently, former Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott hasn't exactly been uh, backward about, <laughs> about his views. Is that really the case, though? I mean, I think you probably had to display that degree of assertiveness and plough on and be a bit bumptious to do what you did, really. Initially, that's absolutely true. I mean, without that drive, without that temerity, I would never have cracked it. The problem for me was knowing when to lay off and there are good there are good aspects to this. I mean, it does mean you tell the truth because you don't see the horror on people's faces, and therefore you're saying things that others would like to say but decided it was prudent not to. The downside is you get up people's noses, and if you do that too often, you lose genuine support around you. You might have it outside. I always have support within the broader Labour Party, and I like to think in the electorate. But if you've upset your colleagues once too often, there is retribution. They, you know, they, they, it, there's a reciprocity here about, well, we support you and you, you, we expect support from you and we don't expect you to always get your own way and we don't expect you to say things that clearly we find difficult or sometimes offensive. I think, <laughs> I've learned that now, but it's a bit late, isn't it? When you look back at what you've achieved, I wonder whether you feel like you've changed perceptions in the country about what blind people and perhaps uh, people with disabilities in general are capable of. Do, do people now view it differently or do you think they view you as some sort of anomaly, some exceptional person that is not representative of, of the blind community at large? Well, I like to think the former. I like to think that along with a lot of other people breaking new ground or re-establishing old, that, that we are all the time changing attitudes of employers, thinking about giving somebody an interview, about uh, the way people respond in social life. The, the benefit that I had way back in 1970 where people said, well, okay, we'll give it a go. If you believe you can do it, we'll trust your judgment that you can. And I've always been mindful of not trying to do something that I genuinely couldn't do. I mean, you know, I'd love to fly a plane. I'd love to drive a car. Still would like to drive a car around a, an airfield. Lots of blind people have. Um, <laughs> but in the end, you do what you're good at and you hope that you're setting a bit of an example, and you're inspiring other people as well as changing wider attitudes. I mean, in the end, the truth is that you go forward and you go back. We had the Paralympics in 2012 in the UK and then in Brazil. There's a great upsurge of feeling, isn't it wonderful? These, these guys and girls are doing miraculous things, change attitudes. Six months later, the waters are closed behind you again. Mm. You're passionate about giving people dignity, the dignity of uh, coming off welfare, dependency and being in work. I, I wonder if you accept the view, though, that disability has an ongoing cost. There are non-discretionary costs associated with disability. And even when you are working, your discretionary income is reduced specifically because of your disability. And therefore, even when you are earning a wage, there should be some sort of compensation to mitigate those costs. Do you accept that argument? Yes, I do. Um, I think particularly in relation to mobility costs, I think that we have a program called Access to Work, which is about providing adaptations as well as equipment and for blind people, some, but not enough, some reading support, if you like, technical support that is paid for by the state. That, that is, I think, a real step forward. We had something called Disability Living Allowance, which was non-taxable, which was not a 
uh, a benefit, an income-related benefit. It's now called personal independence payments, but it's been substantially cut back. It is true that it was being more widely used than ever before, and the cost has gone up. But I actually think you have to have a better cost-benefit analysis. If you can get people into work, if you can make them mobile and independent, then, of course, they're likely to be paying back into the system as well as taking out. And we still have this enormous challenge of the number of working-age, blind and partially sighted men and women who are not in regular employment. That's terrible for them, but it's a total waste for society as well. So getting that right, not allowing people to you know, take the mickey with it and ensuring that it's robustly monitored is right, but taking it away is incredibly short-sighted. And I know our time is almost up. I do want to talk briefly about your guide dogs because there'll be a lot of listeners who will be interested to know that you've been a guide dog handler throughout your adult life. And every time you get a new dog, it's national news. That must be quite some source of pressure for both the guide dog school and you as you bed in a new guide dog team. Yeah, it's it's great news really for the guide dogs of the Blind Association here in the UK because they get really good publicity out of it. Um, I, for me, it's a challenge because it's not like taking on a new car and just getting in and doing a trip around the block and discovering where, where the, the, the newfangled devices are. You're actually having to make a relationship with, with an animal. The, the dog has been trained to that point, but you can't carry on reinforcing that training and you're learning about the dog and the dog is learning about you, learning to empathize, learning what's expected learning to second-guess what you want without such presumption that you end up in the butchers when you wanted to go to the post office. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a relationship, a living, breathing, changing relationship. It took me six months to get the, my present dog. I've had, I've had him for five and a half years now. He's just over seven. It took me six months before we'd really settled down uh, and we were working well. And that is a difficult period because, as you say, you're in the public eye. People see you making mistakes as well as doing well. And also, young dogs love people fussing them, uh, offering biscuits, um, distracting them. And mm -hmm. there you are, struggling like mad to be a good disciplinarian, but one that the public <laughs> don't think is actually abusing your dog. So you've actually got to be tough and kind at the same time. And those who have had uh, guide dogs, seeing eye dogs, whatever you want to call them, will know that this is always a balance because I was on a train once and a guy was feeding my dog yeah. handfuls of sandwich. And I said to him, um, would you countenance me putting sugar in the tank of your car? And he said, what do you mean, mate? I said, well, you're doing to my dog what I would be doing to your car, I'm com I'm com you're completely ruining what I've actually built up and the way he's going to work and respond. And I was a bit more robust than I would be now. I mean, I'm slightly more diplomatic, and I probably would have just done it a little bit more gently. But the point was made, you know, people don't think that this is a working unit. They think, oh, here's a nice dog, I can stuff something into it. And the disaster that that means for the dog as well as for you is something that all owners will know about. Yeah, well, good for you. And, you know, you give the dog a correction and next thing you know, it's in the Daily Mail, blanket guilty of animal cruelty or something. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, 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 as, just as we go, let me ask you, it seems to me that the sheer pressure of performing your cabinet roles to a standard that you were happy with, and I know you do have very high standards, it took an enormous toll on your, your work-life balance, uh, your health, and some of the media scrutiny you received was, by your own admission, self-inflicted, but there were also some cases of absolutely vicious and nonsensical slander without any basis at all. When you look back on all of this, was it worth it? Would you do it again? Well, I'd try and avoid the most obvious personal mistakes, but right. I would do it again, yeah. And if I had to put up with the abuse and the distortions and the hurt... And yes, the the 
terrible harm personally to me and, and my closest that, that it did. If I had to do that again in order to achieve the wider goals, I would still do it. But I would advise any young person getting involved in politics not to walk away from it, but to get a job, get a life, get good relationships above all, and then come back into it full on and be extraordinarily wary of something that I didn't have to put up with. Don't put anything on Facebook and don't Twitter anything that you wouldn't want to actually be held up and uh, challenged about in 10 years' time. And that's, uh, I think, quite a difficulty for young people today. I can't tell you what an honour it is to have had this time. I really appreciate you making yourself available and thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much indeed and uh, good luck to you and uh, to all those you're working with. Before we go, let's look ahead to next week's podcast because I'm really looking forward to this one. I host a radio show called The Mosin Explosion. It's been going in various guises for about 17 years now. And one of the things that has been coming up over the last year and a bit that I've been eating more healthily, cutting the carbs and seeing dramatic differences to my weight and my health and my overall sense of well-being is this whole topic of how do you do that? How have you become so healthy? Especially since a low-carb lifestyle contradicts what for a long time has been considered conventional health advice. It's been said for a long time that if you eat fat, you're going to get fat and you're going to clog up your arteries and have a heart attack and it's going to be horrible, so cut the fat right back. In fact, there's an emerging body of evidence to suggest that exactly the opposite is the case, that good, healthy fat helps you to lose weight, lowers the bad cholesterol, and puts you in really good shape. And certainly that's what's happened to me. And I've had so many people asking me about this. I thought, where better to turn than the world's most famous low-carb podcaster? He runs the longest-running health podcast on the internet. His name is Jimmy Moore, and he runs the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Podcast, which you can find in all the good podcast apps. He's also written a number of books, including one that he's co-written on the subject of fasting. I do that too, and it has immense benefits. So this is a podcast next week that could change your life and challenge the way you think. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.